0: About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan.
1: I'm Catherine Broback.
0: And this week we are discussing The Veiled Lady, a Poirot short story first published October 3rd, 1923 in The Sketch. And let's get right into the victim of our story, the alleged victim of our story. Spoiler! <laughs> Lady Millicent Castle Vaughan, the fifth daughter of an impecunious Irish peer, about to marry the very wealthy, if a bit particular, Duke of Southshire. She is a victim because she's being blackmailed by one Mr. Lavington to the tune of 20,000 pounds for an indiscreet letter that she wrote to a young lover when she was younger and less discreet herself. We've all been there, you know, except nowadays it's not a, it's not a letter. It's a YouTube video that is impossible to scrub away from any uh,
1: number of emails that perhaps you decided to BCC other people on
0: or reply all That, were, so, that would be kind of if you were going to do like an, an updated Poirot would be like Mr. Poirot you have to help me I accidentally replied yeah. all and now everyone hates me and he'd be like yeah i yeah, can no-
1: nothing <laughs> to be done my friend pick a new name go into hiding and whatever you do do not reply all to say stop replying all
0: Very quickly, because this story hangs on things not being as they appear to be, the suspect here is the aforementioned Mr. Lavington, who is a con man and a blackmailer and the person that Lady Millicent has identified as being the one who is trying to squeeze her for money that she does not yet have. Let's just get right into the world as it appears to be when Lady Millicent visits Poirot's office. Catherine, take it so away. So
1: Poirot is terribly bored. We have found him in this condition at the beginning of other short stories. Um, mm-hmm. But he just figures that all crime in England has dropped to basically nothing because criminals fear his name. <laughs> and this is probably not actually true. So he's basically, Um, he's like, I
0: solved all the crime. It's just over.
1: (laughs) All the crime. Yeah, it's just done. He's just gonna have to, like, work on his mustache and (laughs) listen to Captain Hastings. But Captain Hastings, not to be deterred, continues to read Poirot stories from the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So one of the ones that he fixates on is basically a smash-and-grab jewel theft. Jewels were stolen out of a storefront window. The thief was immediately caught by a group of concerned citizens. And then when he was brought to Scotland Yard, he had the jewels in hand, except as it turns out, they
0: were paste. Right. So one of the concerned citizens was actually an accomplice who did a little switcheroo and Right. But
1: Poirot is basically like, that is just
0: too basic. Exactly. Poirot is not impressed. He's like, that is some basic crime right there. Hastings. He's like, shut up Hastings. Yeah. Do not even, do not even
1: talk to me about this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is though such a good example where like, we're in a short story so let's not be lulled by how entertaining it is that Poirot dismisses the story into dismissing this little anecdote as readers because right. in a short story Christie does not make mention of a crime for no reason so just bear that in mind he mentions this random man who's killed in uh, a British man killed in Holland and, and par- that's it.
1: Paro attributes it to the tinned fish
0: to tin fish exactly
1: <laughs> um, which seems that seems reasonable
0: it does seem reasonable yeah. it probably is is usually tinned fish
1: yeah botulism guys if a can <laughs> is bulging put it back, or throw it away.
0: Oh, is that how you know yeah. if the can is because, bulging?
1: Yeah, if a can is bulging, it means that air has gone inside of it, and that can create bacteria, which creates botulism.
0: Oh, good. The more you know. The Catherine more Brobeck. you know. Okay.
1: PSA here. So while Poirot is uh, you know, mentioning those tin fish, he sees a heavily veiled lady walking up to his flat which obviously must only mean one thing she is there to see him
0: of course This is Lady Millicent, who we already mentioned, who then goes into her story about how she's being blackmailed by this Mr. Lavington, who's come into possession of a romantic letter she wrote to a soldier during the war, as one does, and she does not have the 20K that Mr. Lavington is demanding, and he says he's going to give the letter to the Duke and thereby ruin Lady Millicent. She's kind of in a catch-22 or I catch twenty-two k, or catch twenty. Anyway, um, because it was she she right? She'll have the money once she gets married. I think Paro even suggests she could raise the money off of her impending marriage. Like There are definitely loan sharks that'll be like sure, you're about to be a rich lady. I'll give you some money and charge you 50% interest. But she's not interested in doing that, which given her dire situation perhaps is the first thing that should give us a little pause. That she doesn't really seem to be open to solving this problem in any way other than employing the efforts of it's your par up.
1: Well, she's but. willing to possibly wrangle up a thousand pounds, right?
0: right but he's right I mean she probably could actually get more than that and she in any case it's not that suspicious at that point in the story I'm not saying I was suspicious at all at this point but Poirot agrees to help her and he arranges for Lavington to meet at his office to, to, to discuss terms Lavington comes in but he laughs it off at the same time mentioning that he is headed overseas he'll be gone for a number of days and that if the 20k is not paid by his return then it's curtains for lady millicent and her fancy marriage
1: and speaking of curtains we should mention that (laughs) i know i already did that she was wearing a heavy veil but first of all the title of the story so you know if you if you miss that one that's on you (laughs) but it is interesting that this lady is so heavily clothed and I only mention it because this might actually be the only clue that we're given in the story.
0: <laughs> right? The story doesn't really have many clues. No, or it clues. really
1: doesn't. And the fact that this lady is a socialite who is just, like, wearing a lot of layers that might be the one thing that a good Christie reader should always, always be suspicious of
0: anyone who's in any way hiding or blurring their, their appearance.
1: True. That brings us to the world as it actually is, which I'm, I'm just gonna just, You kind
0: of just have to say what I'm realizing, actually, as we're doing this, I didn't think it at the time, but this is the mini-thriller.
1: It is kind of a mini thriller there's not actually a mystery here and there aren't actually any clues there is a clue but the thing about it is we're not given it and are you talking about the shoes i'm talking about the shoes but we'll get to that we'll get get to that that i agree that's
0: so frustrating that we're not given that
1: right and it's the only clue other than the veil and so we'll get to that but i also think the whole resolution is a cheat. So I'm prefacing all of this to say I'm not a huge fan, so we're going to go into it on that basis. And I might
0: be a little bit more of a fan of this one than you, actually.
1: Well, that will be good. It's good when we have have differences, Kemper. I agree. (laughs) Here is basically what Poirot decides. Poirot, because he's so bored, has also been complaining that it's really great for the whole world that he decided to be an upstanding citizen and not... An arch criminal. (laughs) So it kind of made me
0: think of you and your distrust of Miss Marple, uh, Marple. which I'm still smarting from.
1: I know, Um, you're having such a hard time. I'm so sorry.
0: Because I feel like that's what you accuse poor Miss Marple of potentially being this mastermind evil. I never said evil,
1: I was not making a moral judgment.
0: I just I, I, just, I just
1: never even went
0: there with Miss Marple. So it was interesting that in this story we read so soon after having that conversation, Poirot himself goes there.
1: He does. And, you know, though, Poirot does not make a moral judgment of it in this case either. He just simply breaks bad. <laughs> Um, decides that in fact he's going to burglar Mr. Lavington. And Hastings is pretty on board with this, I think.
0: Hastings is totally on board with it. Hastings is Jesse Pinkman. Yeah, Mr. White. Yes, yeah, science.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Undercover of Darkness, they break into Mr. Lavington's Wimbledon house. Ooh,
0: but it's even better than that. It's even more devious than that because before they break in, Poirot... Poirot's
1: already gone there, but we only get that as an aside in the short story. It's it's a drawn sure. out to great length in the adaptation. And to great in...
0: effect, I have to say, in the adaptation. Oh. I thought that was delightful in the oh, adaptation. Oh, it was.
1: We'll, we'll get to that. But yeah. in the short story, it's really only mentioned as an aside because Poirot can so easily lift the sash of the window Mm -hmm. and Hastings is like by god Poirot why is the window not locked and Poirot is basically like oh because I sawed through it earlier in the day
0: early in the day when I impersonated a person who was putting locks irony on the windows and was just let in
1: Indeed, he was supposed to be burglar-proofing the house, and apparently he said that all the windows were electrified, and so the servants then couldn't touch any of them.
0: Right, and they just believed him. They did Poor didn't. saps.
1: So they break in, and they look for this Chinese box, which is apparently holding the incriminating letter.
0: Right, and a Chinese box is just a box that has a hidden compartment in it, right? Like, it's a it's mm-hmm. a box that it's, it, it is difficult it's to open. Pu-
1: it's in. a puzzle box.
0: Right. Eventually, after much snooping to no avail, Poirot realizes that as it is summertime, the least obvious place to hide the puzzle, the Chinese box, would be over the coal bin and under the firewood. And he actually goes into the coal pin and ruins his yes. very nice light suit, pulls out Although a fake log. very,
1: very suspicious that in the short story, he's wearing a very nice light suit to burglar a to house. To burgle,
0: yeah. The short story doesn't commit to the notion of Poirot as burglar in the way that they did in the Suchet series, but good on the Suchet series because it's so much fun. If you're going to do it, just do it, you know? It's go true. Go all in. Uh, but yeah, Christy, I think, was a little un- uncomfortable with this There's there's a bit of glossing that happens with the whole burglary oh, 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 subplot one, in this story. One might say, yeah, because <laughs> he like in his like little spats and light gray morning suit, <laughs> he's climbing, yeah, climbing
1: into, into, his... into a coal bin <clears throat> and digging <clears throat> through firewood. I mean, <clears throat> okay. Um,
0: I did, by the way, I felt like it was a little bit of a callback to what might be the first clue in any Poirot or Christie novel, a mysterious affair styles when there's a fire lit in July. And we're supposed Indeed. to realize that that's crazy because why would you light a fire in July? So
1: Right, and so why <laughs> would you um, ever pull firewood in July, which makes it a natural hiding place?
0: Exactly. So he finds this fake log, which contains the Chinese box, and he steals it. He steals the Chinese box. They <laughs> climb back out the window and into um, a cab and a cab driver who must be somewhat oblivious since Poro must be literally covered in cold dust at this point. Although... To be fair, knowing Mr. Poirot, he would probably have dusted himself off as much as possible, perhaps after exiting the house before getting into the cab. I mean, I, I can't suppose, imagine that he would want to be the seen middle, in cold
1: dust. in the middle of the night, too. I know.
0: Yeah, I mean, this just goes into the whole glossing over of the mechanics of how the, that burglary actually took place. This is the point at which now we get to the crux of what is really happening here in the world, Catherine.
1: Lady Nelson mm. shows up to retrieve the letter. And she's incredibly grateful. Just incredibly grateful that this has been found and that she is saved. And you know, she's so grateful that she would also really like that Chinese box as a souvenir to remind her constantly about how grateful she is.
0: Yeah, just a just a little keepsake. Poro is insistent on keeping the box himself as a souvenir. She's like, no, no, no. I really, really want it for myself. And then Poirot name drops Inspector Jap. And then Inspector Jap appears. from behind a curtain. As he tends door. to do in these short stories, I kind know, of from out of nowhere the in the last page. He,
1: he <laughs> happens to be, like, always behind, like, hiding behind something or hiding in Poirot's flat or...
0: He's actually in in Poirot's bedroom in this one.
1: <laughs> Ooh.
0: To my utter amazement, Jap himself stepped out from Poirot's bedroom.
1: Well, I'd be somewhat amazed, too.
0: And then the oh-so-posh and dulcet-toned Lady Millicent immediately drops the act and says, NABBED BY THE LORD, YOU NIPPY old DEVIL!
1: <laughs> I know, but the funniest thing about it is not only is she supposed to be posh, she's supposed to be Anglo-Irish. Mm. So, like, the difference there, the, the accent difference is... Really,
0: a lot. Well, she's good at accent. She's the Meryl Streep of street criminals. Street
1: criminals, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With all due respect, sir, I have done battle every single day of my life, and many men have underestimated me before. This lot seem bound to do the same, but they will rue
0: the day.
1: Now, shall I be mother? <laughs> um yeah Jap and all is hello Gertie because hello of your name, Gertie <laughs> yeah of course your name's Gertie too mm-hmm.
0: I know it can't just be like Jane
1: no it's <laughs> Gertie Also, the fact that apparently she's incredibly well-known by the law.
0: Right, well, which is perhaps why she veiled herself so heavily while she was walking down the street.
1: Oh, it definitely, definitely is. But at the same time, it's very bold of her to go on this impersonation mission if she's so well-known by Scotland Yard.
0: Absolutely. I guess the veil helped a little bit, but...
1: We should also say, because I don't know that we have, that the other half of the Chinese box is filled with the smash-and-grab jewels.
0: Right, the the smash-and-grab jewels that were that throwaway reference that Hastings made at the beginning of the short story, which ended up being key. And then, last but not least but kind of least actually because of the way that it's presented <laughs> last but totally least is the one clue which is that Poirot mentions just mentions at the end we are never given any indication of this as readers either from Poirot no. or Hastings or anyone that she had bad shoes she had shabby shoes and a real lady who might have shabby clothing. Her, her dress right. might be shabby. She doesn't have a lot of money, but her shoes would always be impeccable. Which I don't know if I really even agree. I mean, I kind of get what he means because I think shoes are such a baseline kind of a thing. So it's like if you're gonna cut corners, you don't cut corners on shoes. You cut corners on a dress. And uh, he just didn't believe that the real Lady Millicent would have such shabby shoes even though she was you know, uh, I, impoverished. I, I
1: don't know if that remains true in this day and age, but historically that is definitely a sign. If you're supposed to examine some of these social status, you're always supposed to look at their shoes.
0: Really? hmm
1: Yep. Think about this for a second. If you think about the importance of shoeshine men in, like— Every train station, or you know, office buildings. I mean, the idea that your shoes are up to snuff is incredibly important, and that's historically just a major indicator. You know, you could hand make clothes, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily need to store by a dress. Perhaps if you're very talented at home, right, you can. Make it out of, you can you can scar a little hair at it or Maria right. Von trap it and make it out right. of the curtains.
0: Right, but you can't really cobble shoes.
1: No, unless Maria von Trapp had really hardcore additional skills that we were I feel not like shown.
0: Maria von Trapp might have actually been able to cobble shoes. If she if she <laughs> wanted to, she totally would have been able to.
1: Totally possible. But yeah, so because you could, you know, potentially make clothes at home, the thing that you couldn't make is shoes and so that's why they are generally considered at least historically a status indicator.
0: Right. Oh, did we mention, by the way, that the real Mr. Lavington was the man killed in Holland, which is why the other guy impersonating him was able was to do so. A, co-
1: a cohort of Gertie.
0: That's why Mr. Lavington's house was empty. So what happened is that the real Mr. Lavington had the jewels, and he also had what may or may not have been a real letter from the real Lady Millicent. That is a bit unclear in both the story and the adaptation. At least it was to us. But... Mr. Lavington absconded to Holland, where he was apprehended by some of Gertie and this non-Mr. Lavington's associates or henchmen and killed. And at the same time, Gertie and Mr. Not Lavington were trying to use Mr. Poirot for their own purposes to locate those jewels, which they apparently knew would be in this Chinese box, along with that letter. It's unclear why one box would hold two such presumably valuable possessions to a criminal such as the real Mr. Lavington. but hey... Makes for a good story, I suppose. So let's talk a little bit about the the adaptation, which I quite enjoyed. This was in. The
1: adaptation's good. It's really
0: good. This was season two. Unlike
1: uh, last week's, which I (laughs) don't think we cared for.
0: No, we did not. It's nice to have one that we adore again. And this was season two, which is right in the middle of the lighter, more delightful, and charming. And there's, I mean, there are just like a couple of moments that I loved, many of them having to do with, again, just going full throttle on Poirot as a burglar. But even before that, so we, we have the moment, the dramatic moment when Lady Millicent, the woman claiming to be Lady Millicent, drops her veil. Because when they first meet her, it's in this lobby and she has it over her face. And finally, she goes to a more private area and takes it off. And it's this dramatic moment. I shall trust you. He's just made this exclamation, uh, I guess, because she's so beautiful. It's just such a ridiculous moment. And it kind of makes sense, ultimately, that she ends up not actually being who she says she is, because it's just so theatrical. She's just it so is. theatrical in this whole episode. But yeah, the burglar sequence, part of the sequence involves Poirot crawling on his hands and knees on a bathroom floor with spiders crawling around him. Hastings dips his hand in the water tank of a toilet and almost <laughs> falls. They really go for it. And then I'm definitely going to put a picture of this on our Instagram account at All About Agatha. Poirot's burglar outfit his like Breaking Bad outfit. This is the equivalent of the hazmat suit It is Breaking Bad. It's it's all black
1: and his his hair is also not oiled down.
0: His hair is not oiled, so it's all must and kind of frizzy and frowzy.
1: And almost the wrong color because his hair is so darkly oiled all the time. It's always quite black. And then, you know...
0: It's, like, a lot lighter.
1: It is lots lighter, especially when he is, wait for it, in jail.
0: In jail, but also, by the way, in jeans, too. He's wearing denim. He's wearing (laughs) denim jeans and riding a bike on his way to impersonating the workmen to this house. Right. That whole sequence taken in the context of the whole show is fairly shocking and deeply funny. And I just, again, I, we have to emphasize his mustache, and they, they make the contrast really apparent because there's this extreme close-up of his regular super waxed and turned-up mustache, and then we cut to him on the bike in the jeans, and his mustache is totally down and over a mess lip. and over his lip. also, oh.
1: you know, when, he, when when he actually breaks into the house later in the episode, his mustache is waxed again. Well, he and can only so,
0: unwax his mustache for so long. I know, long, the but then the best,
1: one of the best things is when Inspector Japp comes to collect him at the precinct.
0: Morning, sir. Morning.
1: Vicious-looking character, isn't he? He hasn't been any trouble. No, he's too clever for that. We wanted to get our hands on him for months. Apart from not giving a name. What is his name? This is not funny, Jack. Well, nobody knows his real name, but everyone calls him Mad
0: Dog. Mad Dog, eh? One fancy ring, one pair of pinch nose spectacles, one. Uh, what is that?
1: That is my moustache comb.
0: Moustache comb? Yes. You didn't
1: tell me it was one of your unnatural sir. Just give me things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a moustache comb. We of course have a chase sequence, but this one is an in-person chase sequence. Um, it is. It's
1: not in a car.
0: Not in a car. So props on that. And I love that they set it in a natural history museum. Like that yeah, was—it's delightful. That was an amazing setting. <laughs> it like has there's
1: no—it has no narrative purpose whatsoever.
0: None. Like not even a little bit. It's just really yeah. fun to look at. There's dinosaurs, apes. They do have a whole thing of Gertie and uh, her cohort, you know, Mr. Not Lavington are hiding underneath this sheet for a really long time. And oh, Jack
1: pulls, Jack pulls off a sheet from a chimpanzee, or an orangutan, maybe?
0: It's some sort of primate.
1: He says that he has found one of his relatives, Mr. Not-Lavington's relatives.
0: Right. It's a tense, suspenseful sequence, but it's also funny in addition to being suspenseful, which is what this show does so well. And yeah, I mean, it ends in exactly yeah, the same way. Um,
1: overall, I mean, it could it could have used more lemon.
0: It could have used more Lemon. I agree.
1: I do like Miss Lemon is just completely appalled that they're allowing a blackmailer into the apartment. And I actually noticed it because I feel like I've noticed this, not just in the adaptations, but in other stories, that there's something particularly unsavory about a blackmailer.
0: Yeah, he's going again to this notion that sometimes murder of certain people isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world, because maybe those people kind of sort of deserve it, but blackmailers generally blackmail people in nefarious Ways and there are people that don't deserve to be blackmailed. Like in Christie's stories, they're often blackmailed for quite innocent reasons.
1: Well, not only that, but the idea that if you were somebody who's going to be blackmailed, it means you have some sort of level of image that makes you some level of decent person. Whether or not that's deeply true is. But in the world of Christie,
0: it's true. I mean, it's part of the social yeah, order that she doesn't. Too. She's not really interested in upending. These are people that have something to lose and blackmailers are a rung below some murderers.
1: <laughs> we should come up with a list of the worst ne'er-do-wells in these stories.
0: Yeah, it's true. It would be interesting because it's actually difficult for a murderer to distinguish him or herself, I think, in Christie because there are so many of them, and their motives usually fall into one of those four L's that P.D. James identified Love, Lost Luger, and... Loathing. loathing, but it's the non-murderer, the people that are doing other things other than murdering, they're often doing them well,
1: for well, stranger or, reasons. Or they're doing murdering and they're also ruining people's lives in additional ways. Sure.
0: It actually makes me think of a Miss Marple we won't get to for a while but it's such a memorable one, the moving finger, which is all about poison pen mm-hmm. letters right. and in a small town and it's memorable because it's really awful. <laughs> like, the things that are, that are said about people and the ways that it ruins people's lives and just makes everyone so uncomfortable is more awful than 90% of the murders that take place in Agatha Christine.
1: Novels. Even if we go back to murder at the Vicarage, when we're talking about why Griselda was suspicious, it's because the thing that she is trying to prevent is essentially not poison pen letters, but insidious gossip about her husband because Mm -hmm. she knows that that alone is going to be more undermining than anything else.
0: Yeah. So that is The Veiled Lady. Join us next week for our next novel, a standalone novel, The Citiford Mystery. We're not exactly at the right time of year for it, unfortunately, because if I remember correctly, it features being snowed in and lots of wintry weather, and we're just about bursting into springtime here but that's okay we can use our imaginations so in the meantime please feel free to contact us via email at all about at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter at all about the dame or on instagram at all about agatha on facebook at our facebook page all about agatha And if you are listening to this podcast via iTunes, please take a moment to rate and review us. We very much look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Bye.